1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Melanie Challenger brings us a new history of what it means to be human in her new book, How to Be Animal. Melanie Challenger works as a researcher on the history of humanity and the natural world and environmental philosophy. She is the author of On Extinction, How We Became Estranged from Nature, and she received a Darwin Now Award for her research in the Canadian Arctic and the Arts Council International Fellowship with the British Antarctic Survey for her work on the history of whaling. And Melanie's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is How to Be Animal, A New History of What It Means to Be Human. Melanie, welcome to Little Atoms.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So first of all, tell us the idea behind this book.
0: Yeah, so it was quite a slow grow. So the book that I wrote on extinction, which was is a sort of um, a cultural and a natural history of of extinction it was a long time ago now so it was kind of more than a decade ago that I published it and so longer than that when I was researching it but my interests were environmental history broadly so kind of how we'd ended up with not only with a particularly modern societies I'm speaking about here with an estranged relationship to the rest of nature but also a destructive one so the environmental crisis, climate change, biodiversity loss, those sorts of things. And within that research, I always have, I mean, I'm not a biologist, but one of my colleagues always says I'm I'm like a frustrated biologist. I'm always curious about, you know, um, how what we are um, has come to be. And so my question really many, many years ago, coming straight out of that extinction work was how, what kind of animal becomes so destructive to everything it relies on to live. Uh, You know, what, what does it mean to be an organism that is putting all of the processes, earth systems in danger? And so that was the starting point. And what slowly crept in to view was this idea that we have at the heart of the human condition a struggle with accepting that we're animals. And this through history has taken lots of different forms. So one of the first forms it's taken is that we in some sense, deny that we're fundamentally animals. So we sort of push ourselves away from that. Now that's come in the form of seeing ourselves as having a sort of human bit that we can separate out from being animals and the animal bit. And that's generally the kind of body soul was the original form of that. But over years particularly post-enlightenment it's and and up to the present day it's the idea of our minds our identity our rationality and so forth and so I really started th- those were the starting points how have we become this strange animal with it with a kind of distorted relationship to the rest of nature and then why is it when we trace through history that we can see we've had this very uncomfortable relationship with accepting that we're animals and that was really how the book began
1: Let's talk about then, and you spend quite a lot of time in the book talking about this, it's a big question, but let's start to look at where this idea that we are separate from animals began. Because, I mean, you've just described it as a, a relatively modern idea in human history, but of course it's also, I guess, a an idea that comes out of a philosophical tradition. We might say, you know, it's a Western idea, for instance.
0: Sure. So this was something that That plagued me. So other people have have obviously taken on these sorts of ideas and the assumption generally is that this is a, uh, you know, you can really pinpoint this destructive paradigm at the onset of Western sort of modern civilization, particularly, you know, Judeo-Christian ideas, for instance. Christianity always tends to get a bit of a hard knock on this one. And I thought to myself, well, that can't be the the whole story. I'm never comfortable with things that are too neat in that kind of way in any case, or narratives that are too neat like that. This is going to sound a little random, but it'll it'll come true. So the thing that enabled me to go deeper into prehistory and looking at this idea was... I was always very curious a bit about dehumanization. I've done a lot of work on conflicts and conflict resolution in, in my earlier work and I'm very aware of the appalling things we can do to one another and have done to one another through history and dehumanization often takes the form of it, it can come in multiple different forms, but its most common one is to argue that you know to see another person as an animal and not as human anymore. So dehumanization is really kind of animalizing someone else. So that you don't value them anymore, now you know i couldn't really I couldn't ignore that when I was looking at what it is to be an animal because that's it that's a curious thing. you know we are animals, so how does dehumanization really work and and where does that come from? And that gave me a starting place because this is absolutely universal. we find this everywhere. Um, In all societies, you find it in all different worldviews. Human beings do this to one another and they use this kind of uh, an image of this sort of metaphor of animals to dehumanise one another. And that made me start to kind of scrape the layers of time back further and and try and make sense. In particular, what I was curious about is what is it that is effective in dehumanising? And essentially what's effective is that we find aspects, certain animals and aspects of being animal frightening, you know, and this is also about our particular kind of cognition and we can go much, much earlier then to try and look at how it is that we as animals interact with one another, what kind of social behaviours we have and how actually that particular kind of cognition that we've got, so to be very aware of our condition to be very aware of of one another and be weighing up what kind of relationship we want and crucially to have a very flexible way of having a relationship with one another that is the sort of starting point if you like of the possibility of then having a strange relationship with being animal basically because what we're up to all the time as social animals as social primates Is trying to assess whether another person is someone that we want to value or not, that we want to have a good relationship with or not. And that's kind of the heart of everything that's extraordinary about us. But the corollary to this is that it's enabled us to not only have a very, to be very aware of one another, but to also be very aware of our animal condition. And everything that we find alarming or frightening about that condition is then. Weaponized, if you like, in dehumanisation. So yes, um, this whole struggle that we have with being animals has been amplified by certain Western worldviews and and certain sort of dominant ideas through history. But the psychology that underpins it is way back in our prehistory.
1: The idea of consciousness of the sort of self that obviously is something that we we talk about separating human beings from animals. Obviously, this is something we, you know, we can all be familiar with and it is interesting to think about you know this idea I am you know I'm obviously a person that eats and shits and what have you but (laughs) at the same time there is so much going on in my body that's autonomous things like breathing or what have you that I you know I have no real control over and then obviously that can be taken further in terms of research that's latterly been done into into our mind into our consciousness leads us down the path of away from free will and whatever and thinking that actually there is so much more that's going on in our minds that actually we we have no control over
0: yeah so there's lots of things that's odd that are odd about the human condition. The way that we see ourselves, the way that we view ourselves is key here. So as I was saying earlier, on the surface, we all nowadays accept that we're animals. That wasn't always the case throughout history. Maybe if we look at indigenous worldviews, generally from what what can be seen in extant societies and gathered from sort of cultural artefacts, generally... People saw themselves as part of a sort of biotic community, but they nonetheless assumed there was always a sort of spiritual element there. Um, It's just that other animals have these spiritual elements as well. It wasn't exclusive to humans. What's certainly true about the kind of rise of monotheism is that you do at that point in time um, have the emergence of the idea of a unique human soul. And then, as I said, when we kind of flip forward and it's not quite as straightforward and neat as this, you know, because different classical thinkers, for instance, might have had ideas like this. But the really kind of major moment in history when it gets argued that we go from this unique soul to the soul sort of migrating into the mind and you have this idea of the unique human mind and free will, rationality. Dignity, you know, moral agency, these all kick in in, in the Enlightenment when kind of empiricism and rational, rational thought are, are having their day. All of these different ways of seeing what it is to be human have relied on this idea that there's some sort of duality, there's some sort of split. And they've gone further. They've tended to then say, make value judgments about these. So it is the separate spiritual things, whether it's the soul, whether it's the mind, whether it's free will, whatever it is, that is separate to this sort of troubling animal body of ours. And this animal body that we share with all of the other animals, it's that that gives us our ultimate value. And not only that, it's that that justifies lots that we do. And in fact, our legal systems still rely on ideas like dignity, for instance, which are devilish difficult to actually make sense of, you know, what What actually is it? Can you contain it? Can you separate it out? You know, we work with these intuitions, but they're actually very difficult to pin down. Now, it's that mentality, it's that duality that we've lived with for so many hundreds of years now that causes the problem when we come up against science, that seems to argue, you know, free will is a bit of an illusion, or we come up against... You know, the kind of um, neurochemistry or the any kind of data that shows us how much of our action, really valuable action to our lives, is not happening. You know, we're not privy to consciously and so forth. And that seems to really trouble us. But I, I don't, I, I myself don't find it troubling. I don't think it has to be troubling if we haven't created this slightly false kind of binary in the human condition that's at the heart of the problem a lot of the time. And, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, why has that idea appealed for so long? And it has appealed for longer than monotheism. It's clearly the idea of, of a, this spiritual element has that saves us from what we dislike about being animal has been there for hundreds of thousands of years.
1: So, I mean, we've just talked there about the, the sort of consequences of that thinking in that binary for ourselves, literally ourselves we talked earlier about you know some of the consequences about how we behave with other people in terms of like you know othering the people we want to oppress let's talk about what the consequences are for our relationship with other species then what does it mean for animals if we think that we are separate from them
0: yeah so the dehumanization stuff is really key to me because that there's a really interesting moment in the archaeological record. Now, you know, we do have to be cautious with ancient sites about over Nonetheless, it's striking that we have the cave art, for instance, the rock art that we find in places like Chauvet Cave, Lascaux, where we see almost no human images. You have Images like the sorcerer, which is kind of very well known, which may be a sort of shamanic character. But mostly what's what's drawn are incredibly detailed and impressive images of animals that they these societies were hunting or, or animals that these societies admired in some way or another. They're quite reverential. And they're very detailed. Now, we get a shift at the onset of domestication and um, settled townships. In Turkey, there's a site called Çatalhöyük. And at this point in time, and it had been happening over time that the iconography had been changing and and certain, you know, the sorts of images of wild animals that were drawn were sort of lessening. But you arrive at this moment where you see almost exclusively men there's I think there's only a pregnant woman in the images as I recall Um, it's mostly men they're in leopard pelts and they're holding spears and just the way that they're located visually shifts you see them above the animals pointing downwards it begs the question was this a moment where um, when they didn't need to think into these other animals when the relationship with wild animals was changing from hunters to farmers. Yeah this is also the
1: cradle of agriculture this area
0: as well. Absolutely was was this the moment when our relationship to other animals really began to shift and I think what we see there is that we have a tendency, so this is where we're going to come back to this problematic idea of binaries. We have a tendency to, what I got to the sort of think about dehumanisation is that dehumanisation is ultimately dementalization. We're stripping another being of mind and intelligence, agency feeling, that kind of thing, because we either want to deflect it, we want to block the messages and signals because we don't want, you know, it doesn't serve our purposes to, to respond to them and see them or because we actively want to be aggressive um, and exploitative in some kind of way now I think we see hints of that at the onset of domestication and I think that the dominant paradigm that's come since then that human beings are unique and exceptional in having feeling and agency and all other animals are to a certain extent just sort of automatons has been really with us right through to the present day, it is still remarkable to me that we continue to see evolution in a kind of progressive chain of being when we know this isn't the case and we continue to deny the obvious expressions of intelligence, capability and intention and feeling in other species and also the kind of just extraordinary sort of evolutionary niches that other animals have from you know the ability I mean even today like today we've had only use these sharks that have been found with bioluminescence I mean How do you value that sort of thing? How do you decide what is or isn't within biology of value? So, yes, this idea that being animal is somehow lesser, that it's just cognition that's important, or um, we're the sort of clever ape, we're homo sapiens, we're the wise ape, this preferential sort of view of intelligence, we forget it feels so logical to us, it feels so natural to us, and it feels so self-evident that we can forget that there might be a... A very serious bias at work. And that prevents us from seeing how remarkable are the other lives that are alongside us on the earth. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Melanie Challenger and we're talking about her new book, How to Be Animal, a new history of what it means to be human. And Melanie, I want to carry on exactly where we, we just finished off there because this is really where I wanted to go next. We do tend to think now about, you know, we're starting to think about certain other animals as being, like I'm particularly thinking of like the great apes here, as something that perhaps we should start to think of in ways more human-like in terms of rights and things. But that as you just were sort of hinting at, is like an interesting distinction in itself because we tend to be therefore looking at them through perceiving these animals through human eyes and and giving them human attributes that we value, whereas the famous concept of, you know, what is it like to be a bat sort of idea that there are, you know, there are other animals out there that can see in ultraviolet, that is something that we can't even imagine, can can navigate by sonar. Let's talk about some of the, go into some more more detail on this, about, you know, just some of the other capabilities that you talk about in the book that animals have that we can barely even conceptualise, never mind value as something that should be a, a worthwhile trade.
0: So one of the animals that I talk about, are, you know, are sharks that have, you know, the ability to detect electrical fields, you mentioned ultraviolet, so parrots, for instance, see an in ultraviolet. There's just a staggering realm of capabilities because that is what happens if you get diverse life and evolution goes about its business. You know, that's what you end up with. A lot of how you get to that point can be quite unpleasant for the lives of other animals. So this is a, this is a sort of crucible in which the elements, you know, are, 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 can be pretty amoral and unpleasant So a lot of rapid change can happen through predation, for instance, and the kind of predator-prey arms races. And then through that, you get the emergence of just these extraordinary things like, you know, anglerfish that have the lures hanging down and, you know, the the need to have echolocation in bats, as you mentioned, you know, are all about identifying prey in the environment. None of this is necessarily comfortable for us to think about in terms of moral sense. But I think we forget that our own morality is adaptive, that it has, you know, it's not just some sort of neat little abstract realm that we can separate off from our biology, that it came from somewhere, that it's our niche, if you like. And as a consequence of that, our own morality is subject to some of the sort of amoral flaws that you will find within the system. So when it comes to how easy it is for an animal like us to really be willing to see into The minds and capabilities of other animals and to value them we have limits on that because we are predators and we forget that a lot of the time you know domestication is really just controlled predation it's still eating other animals it's still feeding off of other animals but it's doing it in a controlled manner but that that is what it is you know and it doesn't it doesn't serve a predator too well to apply its moral (laughs) its moral sentiments to the things it's going to eat and that's that's true anywhere in nature you know, ultimately, those sorts of feelings arise through bonding. So, human beings can be super in love with the minds and, you know, feelings and needs of other animals when, for instance, there are pets. And I bet any dog lover out there who's got a beloved family dog at home totally knows what their dog wants when they come in the room totally recognizes the intelligence of their animal and what it is that they're expressing to them so the point is is that a lot of our moral capabilities turn on the relationship that we want with something or someone and that has caused you know this causes an impediment in the science of understanding what other animals do so one of the big sins within sort of comparative cognition is to anthropomorphize But we forget that human beings anthropomorphize one another. That's what we're in the business of doing all the time. We look at one another. We look at eye movement. Yes, we talk, but a lot of what we're doing doesn't involve talking at all. It's just involving looking at gesture, looking at facial expression, looking at, you know, eye movement and intuiting that there's a mind you know, in that other person and feelings and that we can respond to them or ignore them as it suits us. But that's what we're up to. So... Yeah, I think we've had some limits through time in the science as well by not allowing ourselves to anthropomorphise enough and recognise and value what we find in other species. That said, I'm not a big fan of making comparisons based on a human level. So not, you know, looking at what a great ape can do that might be analogous to what a human being can do. You know, animals evolve for their own niche, not For a human niche, we shouldn't be measuring them based on how they map to us because their lives are never going to map to us. They've gone through a a totally different evolutionary pathway. So I always think that's a bit of a dead end, really.
1: Thinking back to the idea of when we think of nature and we think of red in tooth and claw and everything and predation and the absolute, you know, terrible, terrifying violence of just surviving out there in nature. (laughs) Of course, the irony is that, you know, one of the reasons we think all that stuff is so bad is because we have conceptualized and understand the concept of death, you know the very idea we one of the things that makes us human is the fact that we we understand that life itself is finite, which surely influences how we how we react to other to other creatures as well
0: yeah, for sure, now there are two ways of looking into this and and i 'm not going to pretend that any of these are, are simple things to answer. And in fact, I think the whole book really is an invitation to think about these sorts of things and not to impose absolutely kind of straightforward answers on things that are deeply, deeply gnarly. It is extremely perplexing and difficult to pull morality out of the world, including, you know, human morality. Anyone who stands there and thinks everything is straightforward is just is kidding you on or hasn't thought about it deeply enough. It's all very, very troubling. But in terms of concept of death. Yeah, I, I certainly think humans do have are remarkable. We're doubly remarkable because we don't have anyone else from our lineage extant living with us so that's pretty unusual you know most other um species will have a highly related species you know from their lineage you living at the same time as them we haven't that's a curiosity of our past we know that homo erectus homo Neanderthalensis were, you know, Neanderthals were living alongside us, certainly until relatively recently, certainly within the last kind of 50,000 years. And yet now it's only us left. I think if there were other humans wandering around, other human species wandering around with us, perhaps none of this would look so extreme. Similarly, the Paranthropus lineage died out, but they were another sort of big brained primate who were, it seems, from the fossil record, vegetarians. So it's interesting to imagine what their pathway might have been like had they survived. All of these things kind of can trouble us, but we certainly have a unique cognition. And what that has done for us, because of our high level of sociality, that's really where it comes from, that we, we have lots of different relationships within our group and with between other groups. Those relationships are highly cooperative, but they're cooperatively flexible. They're not always pro social, they can be aggressive as well. Um, because of that particular kind of cognition, we need to outthink one another, let alone our prey or other other things in the environment. We're in the business about thinking each other all the time. And that has driven a lot of this kind of cognition and kind of mental skills and psychology that we've got. What that has left us with, of course, is the legacy of a fear of death and a concept of death and an awareness of death. Now, that isn't to say other animals don't have an awareness of death or something that comes quite close to a concept of death in as much as while they might not be rationalising it in the way that we are, they certainly have some awareness of it, and we are increasingly seeing evidence of memorial-like practices, sort of grieving-like practices that are happening, certainly in primates, but even in, certainly in other mammals. You know, in my book, I have an anecdote of, of seeing a prairie dog who, now, I don't know much about prairie dogs because, you know, I'm from from the UK. I was in Colorado at the time, so these aren't animals that we have in in our environment here. But even with very little knowledge of these animals, while I was walking along, and I one had been knocked over, but before I'd seen that that one had been knocked over by a car, I could hear this sound, and it was absolutely unmistakable as a distress call of some kind. It drew my attention. I went to the scene, and I found another prairie dog that kept returning, kept returning, kept returning to their corpse and wanted to try and get the corpse of the run over prairie dog back to the side of the uh, side of the road. I then talked to the behavioral ecologist Mark Beckhoff about this, and he was able to confirm that he'd he'd come across other instances of this in in his research in the previous years. So, So this is something that routinely happens. You know, What is that exactly and how do we value it? It's certainly an awareness that something really bad has happened. But we have a real tendency to want to argue that it's precisely our concept of death that means we suffer and only we therefore have true moral value. You know, Heidegger said only, you know, only humans die, all other animals perish And it's yet another of these ways in which we try to separate being human out from being animal. Now, there is a difference there. We grieve enormously. We long lived. We raise our children for a long time. That's part of our evolutionary history. That's part of our life cycle. Of course, we grieve. We're very aware of one another. We have time traveling memories. Death and grief are explosions in our bodies you know and and they affect us and as a consequence we have particular needs that arise from that but I think it gets problematic when we then say that death doesn't matter in other animals Um, that's where I think we can push it too far I think you know a a lot of animals are aware of death they certainly are in the business of trying to avoid it and ultimately with other species it comes down to you know how do we think about the value of their life rather than how do we think about their concept of death
1: to finish us off It would be easy to end the interview by talking about, you know, in terms of how can we think about becoming more like animals, respecting our animal brethren in in ways that will help us save the planet or what have you. But actually, I want to talk about a way in which we're going in the opposite direction in terms of um, ideas of transhumanism, you talk about in the book, in in terms of the use of technology in ways that will enable us to become further and further away, you know, downloading our consciousness to a a huge hard drive or something at some point in the future, which seems... (laughs) This sort of desire to take us further away from the animal parts of our bodies, detaches from our bodies completely.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, it's interesting, this one, isn't it? Because ultimately that does follow from our fear of death. Um, And in that we are unique. You know, we are all animals are in the business of trying to stay alive up until the point when it's necessary. You know, some animals are, are happily happy once they're well, happy. There we go, I'm anthropomorphizing. Ah you know, will allow their bodies to be consumed by their offspring, for instance. You know, that's that's part of the deal. You know, anything's possible out there in in what but, you know, in what solutions may be found to the ultimate need to continue a lifeline, to continue the journey of that particular animal um, through its offspring. Human beings can often lose sight of their offspring. (laughs) They're so worried about their own deaths and their own mortality. And we massively preference our uh, reproductive years. We massively tend to preference the kind of minds and sort of outlooks that we have classically kind of between 15 through to old age, but particularly 30s, 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s, when you know we we really we don't just want to live forever, we want to live forever when we're in our kind of reproductive peak, um, which just shows the sort of underlying biases that affect us. It is a fear of mortality ultimately that makes sense of of the strange relationship we've ended up having with with our own bodies. Not only has it morally suited us to see our bodies as being the animal bit that we share with other animals and therefore the bit that doesn't really have value, so the bit we can replace. But nowadays we have technologies that, you know, enable us to engineer our bodies. So we have CRISPR, we have computer technologies, we have all kinds of tools at our disposal, excuse me, that enable us to engineer biology. Now, if you've become, if you're frightened of your biology, if you find this sort of messy, leaky, you know, reproductive bits of us disturbing the bits of us ultimately that are going to die then you can see how you end up with this mad drive to try and as you say kind of down enhance our minds and forget our bodies like try and keep our bodies going just long enough to keep our minds going or maybe even download our minds and live forever in some sort of cloud computing madness. I mean not only do I think people are on a hiding to nothing with this one but it's You know, it's not something you can simply ignore because the engineering of biology, even if it's not going to prove to be the saviour that people might hope it's going to be ultimately because they've forgotten that your mind is reliant on your body you know it's it's your identity doesn't just emerge like a computer emerges it's intimately affected by things like what you've eaten that day by you know by what what your hormones are doing that day you know we've become so frightened of biology but actually we just have such an impoverished view of it biology is massively variable It's not this straightforward deterministic thing. It's, you know, it's just constantly labile and and shifting, but it's fundamental to our feeling and, uh, and our experiences. And this idea that we're going to just be able to strip out some sort of rational aspect of our minds and our memories and live forever, not only is it an aisle of our reality, but it is going to ultimately lead to a load of inventions that are going to emerge out of this you know with perhaps unforeseen applications that you know we may or may not want when really what should we be doing with these technologies? What should we be doing with the tools and opportunities we have at hand? You know, given we're facing the large scale extinction of of other species alongside us, you know, the endangerment of our life support systems, our rivers, our seas, our climate, you know, what are we doing really trying to live forever in a bloody computer? You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's madness. <laughs> But it's happening and it really is happening and it it absolutely warrants attention and discussion for sure. And the fear of death just becomes the fear of somebody switching it off. Well, or, you know, being a mind entity. I mean, that's what I always, it's not like, you know, the mad part of it is you still have to have materials. We can't (laughs) defy physics. You still got to get this stuff somehow. That's the thing that always amazes me about it. And I think ultimately we have to, we have to make our peace with the fact that we are mortal. The earth is mortal for that matter. We have to be able to not base our morality on deep time. I think morality is best scaled much more at the lifetime level. Once you start looking at uh, a cosmic level, it all gets pretty sketchy at that point in time. But you know, we really, yeah, we we do need, I think, to talk about death more and perhaps to see meaning as coexisting with the fact that we're mortal.
1: So I've been talking to Melanie Challenger. We've been talking about her book, How to Be Animal, a new history of what it means to be human, which is out now from Canongate. Melanie, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,